This morning I preach to you the Word of God as it is, as we read it in Genesis chapter 34, which we already read together. It's good to have that open in front of you as we refer to the different verses. The beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ with Genesis 34 open. We just read it, it's in our minds. And it appears to us right away that newspapers in Jacob's day would not be very different from newspapers uh, of today. Human nature has not changed very much. And so although we are very saddened by the disturbing things that we read about in Genesis 34, we are not surprised for people have been hurting each other for a very, very long time. There has been conflict ever since God saved his people from the jaws of the serpent, Satan, in the Garden of Eden. And ever since God put that enmity between the church and the world. And on the one hand, this conflict is good because it keeps God's church separate and saves us from disappearing into the world. We could read that also, or sang that in Psalm 125, how this separation saves us from being judged together with the world in their sins. But on the other hand, it means that the church of Jesus Christ will be in a battle until the return of Christ and the final victory. We also sang about that in the Psalms. In Genesis 34, the battle shows itself when Dinah almost disappeared in the world, when she was attracted to the the daughters of the land. We read that in verse 1. And then she was taken captive by Shechem, a prince who violated and humiliated her. Then later Shechem comes and he talks to the men of the city. He's trying to convince them to get circumcised and, and he tells them that if Jacob would accept the Hivite's offer of peace and intermarriage, he says, and everything that belongs to Jacob will be ours. And so the church with the promise of the Messiah, would disappear in the world. The serpent's mouth is is closing in around the church in Genesis 34, but just before the whole church gets swallowed whole as a friend of the world, Levi and Simeon lash out in a horrible crime that keeps the church separate by being a stink that will be hated for a very long time. The big picture in our text is that in spite of their sin, God kept his church separate from the world. He kept the hope of the Messiah alive in them. But we see also that as he does this, he shows his grace not only to the whole church or the church as a whole, but to the individual members of the church. The little people in the picture are important to God. Just as God cared about the youngest daughter of Leah, Jacob's less loved wife, and saved her, so also the king, Jesus Christ, cares about the victims who have suffered like Dinah, and he gives them a home among his people 
where justice is pursued. We see in this the gospel of Jesus Christ who protects his people. Having suffered as the innocent one, our Lord Jesus Christ understands persecution and oppression and humiliation and rejection. But having conquered sin, Satan, death, he also leads his church to protect the lost and the weak and the vulnerable. And I preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ under this theme, God's people seek to shine as protectors rather than stink in cruelty. We'll see that God's standards protect the vulnerable, that God's servants punish the offenders, and that God's Son provides true justice. So we have our Bibles open. We look at the end of Genesis 33. We see that after meeting his brother Esau, Jacob spent some time in a place called Succoth, and then finally he made it to the city named Shechem in Canaan. Canaan is the land that the Lord had promised to Jacob and his descendants. And there we read that he bought a piece of land from Hamor and his sons, the ruling family in the area, and then he built an altar, verse 20. Uh, 33, cha- verse, chapter 33, verse 20, there he cre- erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. That means God, the God of Israel. So Jacob established himself as a worshiper of El, of God. He made a de- deliberate decision that he would not follow the religion of the Canaanites or live by their standards. As a result, Dinah was raised in his home differently than the nations around her. She knew as she was raised up that God created men and women in his image. Dinah learned that God knew, or that God had created women different from men. He gave different roles to men and women and he commanded his people not to commit adultery, not to, to break the, the bond of marriage in, in any way. Dinah learned that God created men and women, and in fact all people, to live together in harmony, in cooperation, and in love for the glory of God. And so when Jacob and his family were living around this altar to their God in the midst of the foreign nation, they were living according to the standards of God that were later written down in the law that we read already this morning. And so they could shine in the land as a people who humbly tried to maintain this harmony and this peace and this love by protecting the vulnerable, by loving their neighbor's as themselves. Dinah left a very safe place when she went out to see the women of the land. You see that? It's verse uh, verse one. It's a contrast. She went out to see the women of the land who served different gods and who lived by different standards. Shechem, the prince in the land, we read again, He did not have the scriptural perspective concerning women, and he seized Dinah, lay with her, and humiliated her. Verse 2. Dinah did not want to be with the prince, 
But he was very wicked, and he forced her to. His sinful heart fit well with Satan's design. Even today, God's enemies often use the humiliation of women to express their dominance and their power over the Christian church. But we should not think this only happens in the war between Muslims and Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Holy Spirit reveals that such things can happen in the church by the unbelievers who pretend they are Christians. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 9 to 12. And what we see then is that just because someone knows the law, which protects the vulnerable, it doesn't mean that they will live by it. Even children who know better may use their strength to hurt others. We sometimes see that on the playground when when they're strong boys and, and they hurt other people. They know the law. They know that we must love one another. Well, how much more than an adult with the sinful lusts of the porn-stained flesh? So as we read this, we are reminded to be very careful not to make ourselves vulnerable by being overly naive about the grip of sin. The church of Jesus Christ will show the world that we believe that God's law makes a difference in our treatment of one another. We show this in very practical ways. We believe with Dinah's brothers that such outrageous things must not happen in the church. You can see that they they said that, verse seven. God's shepherds, God's leaders will be realistic about the dangers in the world, about the sinfulness of the sinful human nature. They will protect God's flock and apply the standards of God's kingdom found in his law by actually doing something to protect the weak and the vulnerable. For example, since the world does not know God's law and the standards that we as a church live by, it has been necessary to spend a lot of time creating a a secondary document, very well known, for the abuse prevention policy. It's using language of the world to declare that the church of God does not accept or tolerate anyone who is abusing another person, either emotionally or physically. We declare the same love and concern to our children when we make rules about who they may spend time with and what they may watch on their screens or or listen to in their earbuds. We do that to protect them from being abused or from becoming offenders. It's our desire as Church of Jesus Christ, as as followers of God's law, to use our strength, whether as tough boys in the schoolyard or influential workers in the marketplace or able communicators to the media, we use our strength to love our neighbors. That's what God's law says, to defend the weak, to create a safe place in the church for those who need refuge and help. 
And perhaps you have been hurt like Dinah was hurt or humiliated in a similar way as a child or as a youth. You may have been violated by someone who was older than you or in a position of authority, perhaps even in an important role in the church. Perhaps it is happening right now. You don't dare talk to anyone. You need to know that our Lord Jesus Christ wants to protect you, wants to give you a safe place in the church where justice is administered. You need to understand the power of the law of God that we seek to defend. You need to know that anyone in God's kingdom who uses his power or his position to force you to do humiliating things with them is rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord, is disobeying God's law as an unbeliever, is rebelling against the Holy Spirit, and will be punished eternally under the wrath of God if he does not repent, confess his sins, and show real, sincere change. That's the teaching of the church. That's why it's so important to to tell someone right away if you are being humiliated in any way. The Holy Spirit says that we must show love to such people. And 1 Corinthians 5 says, remove them from the church, hand them over to Satan, and no longer associate with them so they can repent before our Lord returns. In no place does Scripture approve of such hateful crimes that must not be done in Israel, that must not happen in the church. That's not what God teaches. That's not what His law teaches. And our most holy and our most compassionate God has said that He will protect the weak by punishing the offenders. We see that in our second point. We read in our text that somehow Jacob heard that the prince of the land had defiled his daughter. But he didn't have the courage to tell anyone until his sons came back. It's verse 5. He didn't have the courage to do anything until his sons returned. And Jacob's sons were actually there when Hamor gives the story that we read in verses 8 to 10. And we see how Hamor begins by speaking of Shechem's love for Dinah. And then he pleads for a a peaceful cooperation between the two nations. He wants to cover over everything that happened. He even offered a, a free trade agreement in which Israel and his sons could be full citizens of the Hivite nation. Shechem also comes, the man who, who committed the, the sin, he, he comes up and, and he's begging them. He he's promises the brothers special rewards. And, and he, he says that, that he, will, he will do whatever he, he needs to do as long as he can have Dinah. He loves her. Who, who would want to stand in the way of a prince's love, right? And at first glance, the Hivites seem very generous. They seem very friendly. But we need to remember that we, what we learn in verse 26, that Dinah was still in captivity in the city of Shechem. We need to remember that the Hivites were a much more powerful nation than Israel. They were threatening to wipe out Israel as a distinct nation. 
It's not hard to understand the brothers' reactions, especially when we understand their office. Since the beginning, God has appointed people who are responsible to maintain justice in the land. In the Old Testament, we read of the kinsmen redeemers who would chase down and kill men deserving death. We read about elders in the gate. We read about kings in their courts. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit explains in Romans 13 that the government was given the sword to carry out justice. Well, in the time of the patriarchs, Jacob and his sons were the elders in the land who would be responsible to guide, teach, and protect their families or their wards. Jacob's sons had the further office of being brothers to a younger sister. And so Jacob's sons were called upon to serve as judges and the police force in the time of this emergency. And when Genesis 34 describes what Levi and Simeon did, we should not think of them as some sort of lynch mob or some individual interfering in the business of others. But we need to recognize that they were legitimate office bearers, servants of God, who were appointed and given the responsibility to execute justice. Whenever the church suspects anyone of a crime, even among their own members, we must seek justice through the means that God has established. We must respect those whom God has appointed to this position. And the best officers are those who love God's word, who love his church, even to the point of being angry at sin, angry at the evil one. The anger of the brothers shows their passion for God's laws, their desire to uphold the standards of the kingdom. In verse 7, we read that the brothers were indignant and very angry because of the injustice done to their sister, which had not been punished. The word indignant, it points to the deep feelings of hurt that they experienced in their hearts. It's that awful quiet and shock we feel in our hearts. We feel before our heart catches up with what our brains and our ears are hearing. It's that deep feeling that's followed quickly by an intense anger, a desire to see justice carried out. After the fall into sin, God, in his grace, gave us the emotion of anger so that we learn to hate sin and so that we even have extra adrenaline to, to defend those who cannot defend themselves. As Jesus illustrated when he drove the cattle and the money changers out of the temple with a, a knotted cord, all anger is not sinful anger. If only this indignation had remained when the brothers themselves were tempted by sin. If only the tribes had remembered how repulsive adultery was when they voluntarily prostituted themselves with other gods in their later idolatry. Well, the brothers, they had an opportunity 
to shine in the world. They had an opportunity to shine as an example of God's strength, of his passion for justice, his deep love for the weak and the, and the hurt and the lost. But in the end, they stunk. They messed it up. We read that when Hamor offered that Jacob's boys could also be Hivites, Jacob's sons responded deceitfully with a false offer of friendship. They said, well, we don't deal with uncircumcised nations, so if you want to be friends with us, you have to get circumcised. Getting circumcised meant having your foreskin cut off, which is a piece of skin on, on the penis of a man that is very sensitive. And when it is cut off of a grown adult, it causes extreme pain and, and fevers for a few days until it heals again. And the deception was that since circumcision was a sign that only meant something if a person truly belonged to God, even if the Hivites got circumcised, it really wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't change anything for them if they didn't repent. It would be like a, a parent saying to a boy visiting his house, you can't date my daughter unless you go to church, as if going to church was more important than, than loving God and living in a relationship with God. So Shechem was completely fooled since he didn't know anything about God's law and because the offer of circumcision was presented as the peaceful alternative to the other alternative mentioned in verse 17. In verse 17, they said, it's either you get circumcised or we will take our daughter and we will be, uh, and we will be gone. It's verse 17. The brothers made it clear that they were tough. They made it clear that they were not afraid to use their strength to defend their sister. They said, either we will attack you straight out and take our sister back, and you will end up licking your wounds without Dinah, or you can all get circumcised, and we will become Hivites, very ironic considering the sign of the covenant, and we will no longer oppose this marriage. Well, either Shechem was intimidated or he really loved Dinah as much as he said he did because Shechem agrees to the circumcision, convinces the whole town to get circumcised. In the eyes of God's officers, his servants, the Lord had prepared the way for them to punish the offenders. When the men of the city of Shechem were at their weakest, it would not have been hard to enter the city, rescue Dinah, and punish the offenders. But sadly, when the church should have shone as the protector of the weak, she was overcome by sin and stunk by acting as a cruel, bloodthirsty beast. Genesis 34 makes it clear that only Jesus Christ, God's Son, can provide justice that shines like the dawn. Now I think, if we're thinking honest, we're talking honestly, that anyone here today who has experienced the anger that arises in a man's heart when he hears of an innocent baby being killed, 
or a child abused or a woman raped is having trouble not feeling at least a little bit satisfied with Levi and Simeon's revenge. We look at verse 26. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And we think, ha, perfect. Shechem will never hurt another sister again. He got his just deserts. Dinah is rescued, and there will be no more threat of the church swallowed up by the world. The problem is that Levi, Simeon, and the other brothers did much more than what we read in verse 26. They did what we read in verse 25 and in verse 27 as well. Jacob tells us, tells his sons that they made the church a stink to the inhabitants of the land. And since everybody knew that they were worshiping El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel, that they were worshiping him at their own special altar, they gave a false impression about God. Now when someone looked at the church, they would think that God approves of the complete slaughter of a whole town of men, the capture of wives and children, the plundering of everything in the city because of the sin of one or two men. Is that what God really means when he says he will carry out his justice in the land? When Genesis 45 or 49, verses 5 to 7, Jacob laments the violence of Levi and Simeon. He disassociates himself with their cruelty. He curses them for their unbridled anger. He promises them that they would be scattered in Israel. God confirmed Jacob's words. And we find out that Levi and Simeon never did have their own piece of property in the territory, in the land of the promise. God's name is not glorified when justice is replaced by hatred and by bloodthirsty cruelty against everybody, even mildly associated with the original crime. Sometimes in our fight to protect the vulnerable, we as Christians are overcome with evil instead of overcoming evil with good. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 21. Sadly, Jacob's sons show no remorse when their father points this out to them. They look at him and they feel justified. It's at the very end of our passage. They feel justified in their indignation. The chapter ends with the question, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? It ends with bitterness. It ends with anger. It could be against the king, the prince, Shechem. It could even be against Jacob. Jacob doesn't seem to care. Is he going to just treat her like a prostitute? It's a sad ending. It makes us long for a better way to see and carry out God's justice. And when we look to scriptures, we see that God, when God carries out justice, he always does so together with grace. In the first place, the Lord reveals that the crimes committed against any person, any individual, are crimes that are committed in, in the context of the greater rebellion against God himself. 
You thought you were sinning against one person, but you're actually sinning against God himself. And since our greatest sin is against God, the creator, and not just our neighbor, this means that we are always deserving more than any earthly judge can punish us with. And justice is not carried out until we have paid with eternity in hell for our sins against the most high majesty of God. True justice requires a greater punishment than any human can give. And for this reason, Paul says in Romans 12, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's what we saying also Psalm 94. The sinner who does not repent will receive full justice from the hands of God. And as we sing in the Psalms, this is a comfort for us. This gives us permission to leave things with the Lord. This allows us to celebrate our God as a loving protector, a father who sees each one of us and who holds us in his hand. True justice deals with the root of the problem, which is sin. And not just the symptoms. And that means that on this side of eternity, we only see, we only saw true justice when God poured out his complete wrath against his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That was the punishment that we all deserve for our sins against God Almighty. Not just some jail time or some fines or eternal apologies. That is the punishment that everyone who continues in sin will suffer from God. But with the declaration of God's justice in its fullness, we also see the gospel that Jesus Christ took that wrath upon himself so that everyone who repents does not need to pay that punishment for his rebellion against God. The gospel message is that God poured out his wrath on his son for our sins, the sins of everyone who believes in him, so that we may experience his eternal mercy and grace. With justice there is grace for the humble and the repentant. And as God's image bearers on earth, we may not hide this grace when we carry out the law of God, when we establish justice on the earth. True justice always leaves room for grace. And so even offenders can know that there is hope for those who repent and submit to God. We see this when God established the eye for an eye rule. The eye for an eye rule restrains the anger of men so that even when he gets what he deserves, the offender can also see grace. Although we are called to defend the vulnerable, to punish the offenders, to use our strength for the good of the weak, the Lord is not so cruel as to mete out a punishment that does not correspond with the crime in kind and degree. As believers saved by the blood of Christ, we discipline sinners in our homes and in the church 
with the same desire for repentance and restoration because justice is always found within grace. God's Son provides true justice. And in Him, we desire to use our strength to protect the weak and the vulnerable with wise punishments that fit the crimes that bring people to repentance. Like many of us today, Dinah went to visit the daughters of the land and got entangled and got hurt and got humiliated. Although the world thought that she lost her honor and Satan laughed as he crushed her, God smashed the teeth of the enemy and he brought her back. She was valuable in God's eyes because she was one of the sheep that Jesus Christ bought with his own precious blood. In Christ, there is always a way back. Like many of us today, Levi and Simeon were angry, very angry with the injustice. They wanted to, to make the guilty pay for their crimes, but they went beyond their office. They tried to be wiser than God. They used God's love for the weak to justify a bloodbath against their enemies as they made them pay for crimes they did not commit. Their cruelty made them stink and they forgot about God's grace toward them, toward all sinners. They did not let the world know about God's gracious justice when they protected their sister. They did not let the, the promise of a Savior who gave his life to save sinners, he did not let that promise shine out from them. They made the shine turn to a stink. They lost the opportunity to speak about God's justice and his grace. They lost the opportunity to restore the weak. It is another wonder of God's grace that although he punished them with severe consequences, God allowed Levi and Simeon's descendants to know the true protector, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we know Christ in all his glory. The one who is just and the one who is gracious. Let us live each day in the forgiveness of our sins and then shine as defenders of God's holy law who protect the weak and the vulnerable, and the lost, and the truth of God's justice and his mercy. Amen.